Hi, this is Tom Washatka, and it's time to get into the music. Today's show is brought to you in part by WCZR Code Zero Radio, your go-to for the best alternative and indie music. Find them at live.codezeroradio.com or download the free Code Zero Radio app. And now, let's get into the music. Well, hello everyone. This is Rob, and thanks for tuning in to Into the Music. Whether you're a regular listener or hearing Into the Music for the first time, please consider subscribing to the show. This helps to keep the podcast going, and you'll be sure not to miss an episode. Subscribers will get a shout-out and a chance to make an appearance on the show. Just use the link in the show information. Well, if you listen to the show regularly, you know that my first guest of 2024 was vocalist Janet Planet. During that interview, Janet mentioned today's guest, and that's her husband, Tom Washatka. Tom has been a fixture in the Northeast Wisconsin music scene for over four decades and has had quite an impact in the area. He's a terrific sax player, an incredible composer and arranger, and as far as studio producers and engineers go, he is impeccable. So with that, I welcome Tom Washatka to the show. How are you today, Tom? Thank you so much, Rob. I'm doing fantastic. Thank you for that great intro. <laughs> well, you're welcome. I'm humbled. <laughs> you're welcome. Well, heck, you, I'm, I'm sitting here scratching my head going, what does this guy not do? You know, so... <laughs> The lawn. <laughs> okay. The back, the, mow the lawn. No, I do. <laughs> oh, wow. I have to say your resume is quite impressive, though. And you obviously don't build something like that without putting in a lot of time and hard work. When did you first get interested in becoming a musician and really growing out of that? Well, Honestly, I, I kind of differentiate between uh, being interested in music and being a, a musician. Uh, I've been interested in music as far back as I can remember. Uh, growing up in Milwaukee, sitting between my folks, my parents, probably five or six years old, watching the Lawrence Welk show <laughs> um, on a black and white television set, early, early uh, 60s. I remember being extremely intrigued by what I was hearing, what I was seeing. So that kind of sparked something inside of me at that moment that just kind of continued to grow. And I remember being a young teenager and knowing, uh, somehow sensing or knowing I would play music my entire life, which I later learned was a musician, right? But at that point, I had no idea how I was going to make a living making music. I just was, uh, it's when the, when the passion started and, uh, Thanks to my mother recognizing that, she nurtured that, and that's how it kind of got started. All right. Well, the bio on your website says that after you took up piano at age 9, you picked up the clarinet at age 13, and then you picked up the sax. The progression from clarinet to sax is understandable, given that both of them use the same mouthpiece. But what was it that interested you in playing the clarinet, actually? Well, you know, I can't really remember how I decided that. After taking piano lessons with my mother for four years, I, I wanted to play another instrument. And how I chose clarinet, I really don't remember. 
Maybe it was the clarinet player on Lawrence Welk. His name was Henry Cuesta. Hopefully I pronounced that correct. And I remember watching the fascination. So that might have been something that had been implanted and that I thought, well, I'm going to try this. I'm going to try the clarinet. Sure. Well, the same question regarding the sax. What about the instrument grabbed your interest? Well, so I started playing clarinet in seventh grade, and I really struggled with it. Um, I didn't have to worry about the the written music part because my mother had me reading music rhythms and pitches and the staff from day one. But I really struggled with the mechanics of the horn. And I sat last chair in concert band and uh, had a devil of, of a time playing it. Well, then eighth grade, uh, I switched schools in Milwaukee. And the very first day, the band director came up to me and said, you know, I have a lot of clarinet players. Would you be interested in playing saxophone? And I'm like, hmm, I don't really know if I knew what that instrument was. I'm sure I had seen it previously, but I didn't know what it was called. So anyway, he pulls the horn off the shelf, the case off the shelf, and opened it up. And I just remember the fragrance of the case and the horn. It was a silver horn, frosted. It was beautiful, purple velvet lining on the inside. And I put the horn together and played it for exactly 20 seconds <laughs> and immediately fell in love with it. I didn't know anything about it, but I just thought this was the horn for me. And it was a little bit easier. Clarinet is, I'll get a little geeky here, but clarinet is open hole. So uh, I had difficulties covering those holes with my small hands in, you know, in eighth grade. Where saxophone, it was a little bit more forgiving in that sense that uh, it had actual keys that would cover the holes. So that's what started a lifelong passion with this crazy horn. Sure. Now, at that time, were you drawn to a particular type of sax, like an alto or a tenor? Well, the the tenor was the first one that I played, but then when I got to college, I realized that I could play all the traditional jazz band has, or conventional jazz band has four saxophones, so soprano, alto, tenor, and Barry, and I had a fascination with all of them, so I wanted to learn them all. So as soon as I could afford to purchase these instruments, I, I, I did. My first horn is the tenor, of course. It's what I, I can hear the the best um i hear in b flat it's pitched in b flat and i hear in b flat uh, but i just like the tessitura or the range of it it was tenor is most closely i guess to the human voice so i just really resonated with that but i do play them all all right well once you got going on sax who did you look to for influences well that's interesting in the early years I didn't really do much listening to specific players other than with the bands that, that they were playing with. Um, I listened a lot to the radio, of course. Um, I didn't really have many saxophone records at the time, but I do remember, for example, hearing Bobby Keys with the Rolling Stones, specifically, I think the tune is Brown Sugar, uh, Junior Walker and the All-Stars, of course. Jerry Martini with Sly and the Family Stone. Um, Lenny Pickett, he played with Tower of Power. Uh, listening to, to bands that had rock bands that had brass sections like Chicago and BS&T. So just kind of inadvertently, you know, being attracted to certain recordings that had horn players in, in, uh, on them. 
So that's kind of how I got my first influences on these instruments, on that instrument. Sure. Now, was there anyone that you wanted to emulate or were you more interested in developing your own style as you were coming up and growing in the instrument? Well, it was such a journey. But as I went, you know, as I got older, went to college, um, I started listening to more and more. I would go down to the library, check out records, and I started to listen to more and more jazz players specifically. And the journey of, of a jazz player generally starts out with imitation or emulation, and then eventually working towards, you know, finding my own voice, uh, becoming, trying to become an individual. But I, to, to this day, I continue to listen. I listen to all players. I learn something from everyone, whether they be younger players or, or uh, my colleagues. Um, I'm fascinated with the uniqueness of all the different styles uh, of players that, that there are. I have a little saying that I, that I say in classical saxophone, and I'm generalizing here. Forgive me, my classical friends, but there is a convention of classical playing. Now it's becoming more and more open as the, the compositions are, u- are utilizing more and more different saxophone techniques. But in the classical world, there's a convention and everybody try, you know, there's kind of a similarity between the players. Where in a jazz context, we try to sound like no one else. So that's the, the uniqueness of this music and of the horn itself. Sure. Now, at what point in your life did jazz capture your attention, and when did you really start to play it steadily? So I started school, and I was going to be a band director. So I was on track to be, I was I was an education major. I was on track to get my education degree. And then I was down at the local library here where once again you could check out records and I came across a record and the name of it was called it was Super Sax Plays Bird. Now at that point I had li- I had been listening I had a roommate who had a couple jazz records so I'd been listening to Stan Getz, Jerry Mulligan, Zoot Sims, Al Cohn more of the west coast what it what was known back then the west coast cool jazz scene so anyway i took this record home super sax plays bird i did not know who super sax was and i did not know who bird was so i put it on and the the very first track i just i was transported to another world and it was epiphanal and it was at that exact moment that I decided, I don't know what this is yet, but I want to learn to, to play this music, whatever it is, whatever it's called. Um, it was jazz music, of course, but then um, back in those days, of course, I read the liner notes in the album, on the album, and they explained who Super Sax was, five saxophone players, and I learned who bird was and he was uh, a saxophone player named charlie parker bird was his nickname so through reading those liner notes i learned a lot about just on that one album the history of of the music especially through the tradition of the jazz saxophone so then my appetite was insatiable i checked out every jazz album in the library i read every jazz history book i realized that i had to 
go back to the very beginning and research the source of this music and the source of this tradition. And uh, I learned so many players. I did uh, a huge amount of lis listening to all different kinds of players, all different styles from uh, the early 20th century through at that time, uh, this would this was 1976. So all the players from the avant-garde, what they call the avant-garde or third stream players up to that point. So I really pretty much kind of came up through the tradition, but that was the album single most that changed my direction. Oh, and by the way, then I, <laughs> that was my sophomore year in school. And I immediately changed majors pretty much dropped all my academics and just kept three, I had two performance classes, jazz band and concert band and, and uh, my private lessons, much to the dismay of my advisor, who of course wanted me to, to be a teacher. And then I just hit the woodshed. I just practiced uh, all the time, all day long. And then after two years of that, I, I took a little break from school and then just really started playing, started performing and then really practiced, spent as much time on the line uh, as I could. Yeah. Now, you, like Janet, both of you have a strong affinity for jazz, and you play a lot of it, And but you're really not solely a jazz musician. Is that correct? Uh, actually, I've played in a lot of different bands. I can quickly, you know, give you... So my first professional band was a little polka trio, uh, basically polka music and then some cover tunes, I suppose you could say. But uh, I've played in society bands, which are basically bands hired for weddings and social events. There was a band in the late 70s. It was called Big City Bob and the Ballroom Gliders. And it was one of the first bands that played in the style of what was later known as Jump Swing. And that was kind of a takeoff on Louis Jordan, some of the vibes of the big bands of the 40s and 50s, 30s, 40s, and 50s. This was before Joe Jackson. This was before Brian Setzer. This was before Jump Swing became Jump Swing. Big City Bop and the Ballroom Gliders, great band, wonderful folks. Uh, but I played in salsa bands, primarily Maddie Salsa, a band out of Madison. I played in funk bands. A few rock bands here and there, uh, and then a lot of big bands. So I've played in many, many different bands over the decades, but I just have an affinity and just gravitated towards this music that we call jazz. And then uh, now I primarily play jazz music. But I will take, I'll take studio gigs, I'll take session gigs, and on occasion I will take non-jazz music. Sure. With the other genres that you've dabbled in over time, have you ever composed or arranged for those genres, or has that just been strictly jazz? Uh, absolutely, I have. From the very beginning, I remember bringing a couple tunes to, to Big City Bob Band, and they, they played them, and it was really fun. And I remember the sound guy also played, the sound engineer also played uh, trombone. I would arrange parts for the different tunes that we were doing between trombone and tenor, and then uh, as well as bringing my, my own. So from the very beginning, I've always kind of dabbled in writing little things, even even when I was still in school and still in high school and living at home. Um, I, I just 
remember jotting down ideas of different things. Nothing really memorable, but just dabbling in that and getting getting started and uh, writing down my musical ideas. Well, I'd like to play a track from an album that you released in 1999 called Easy to Love. And this is the title track. And the album itself is credited to the Tom Washatka Quartet. Who are the other three players on this one? On this track, the piano player is Matt Bookman, a dear friend of mine, who now chairs the jazz department at the University of Stevens Point, who I've known since he was in high school. Um, the bassist is Charles Ledvina, very, very fine bass player. Uh, I believe he's living in Milwaukee now. He's still around. He's still gigging. He's still out and about. And Ryan Club is the drummer. Ryan I've known for 30 years. Matt I've known for 40 years maybe. Uh, so a long, long time. So, yeah, those were the three players on that. So it's a Cole Porter tune. And uh, it's my arrangement. And I took some liberties. Hopefully Mr. Porter is okay with it. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, here is the Tom Washatka Quartet with Easy to Love. Enjoy.
Let's turn a corner here and discuss composition and arranging. Did you learn to compose from anybody in particular? Actually, everybody. Everybody in general, no one in uh, specific. I didn't go to school uh, for a formal school, you know, um, classes in composition or arranging for that matter. Just based on my experience, a lot of listening. Uh, sitting, sitting there, getting if I would able to get a hold of the music score, listening and watching the music as it went by, and then a lot of transcribing and a lot of trial and error. <laughs> That's interesting because the great songwriter Johnny Mandel he had a saying that if you get a hold of a score and then and you're able to listen to the recording you learn to see with your ears and hear with your eyes. And, it, and when I heard that, it was fascinating because that's really what it comes down to. I, I thought that was an amazing little saying that he learned in writing. But, and then I would ask a lot of questions of arrangers and composers that I knew. And, and once again, just do a ton of listening and reading scores if I could. We'll be right back after this short break. Is real music dying? What even is real music and who are we to judge that? Well, my father is a lifelong musician and together we've been making music for over a decade. In our new podcast, we dare to ask the urgent, the weird and the deep questions. And we have a lot of wild stories to tell. No matter what genres you enjoy, whether you're a musician, a producer or a listener, we invite you to discover unconventional perspectives on music. So tune in. And go follow Mad Makings of Music wherever you listen to podcasts. Now, do you recall what your first composition was? I remember in high school, I played in a saxophone quartet. Soprano, alto, tenor, and Barry. And I remember... Taking, I did take a composition. It wasn't really a composition course per se, but it was just more of a class to kind of, uh, more out of curiosity. So what does this entail? And I remember writing this little piece for saxophone quartet. It was probably all of about 30 seconds, 24 bars or 30 bars or whatever it was. And writing it down and then putting it in front of the players and, and hearing it back and the process was just so fascinating to me. And when I would hear it back, it was so satisfying. And I didn't know if it was good or bad. I just thought just doing it, just the act of doing it was just so encouraging. It was very exciting for me to do that. That's what I, I remember early on. But in all the different groups that I played with, I always brought material, whether it just be a little snippet of a melody or an actual fully written out tune. As I said, I've always been fascinated with writing music and trying new things with, with different combinations of players and new sounds. Right. Now, given where you're at right now and you look back at that first composition, what are your thoughts about it these days? <laughs> the very first one, from what I remember, it was not very good. And it was just really more of a snippet, just an idea. I think I, I would play it on piano and then I had to write it out for the different saxophones. They're transposing instruments, so I had to learn my transpositions and get that right. 
so I don't think it was very it was very good. Nothing memorable, but other than the fact of just doing it and how it just motivated me to continue to do it to this day. <laughs> sure. Well, you mentioned before that the composition and the arranging went hand in hand, that you basically self-taught with arranging as well. What were some of your earliest arrangements and who were they for? So I remember doing some things. For, I played in a, in a quartet in the early 80s called Fire and Ice, and I remember bringing some things to that band and then we we would work it out but i remember doing some early orchestrational things one was actually performed it wasn't very good it wasn't the best experience for me because of my inexperience in writing out the part the different parts and handing them to players and then the players not really understanding what was on the paper because it wasn't written in the best way. I was still learning, still learning the process, how to write stuff down, how to write music down in a way that it would be played back in the way that I had hoped it would be and in the way that I was hearing it. So um, those were the early years. Uh, Like I said, it was a lot of trial and error. Um, And then later I started doing some big band things. Uh, And then fast forward, doing the Dylan big band project with Janet. That was a pivotal point for me. I I learned a huge amount. And then to have it realized and to be involved in the recording process and and talking to the musicians about these these particular types of arrangements that I did of, of Dylan music. But that was a kind of a turning point for me as an arranger at that point, at that time. Yeah. Well, I've heard several of your arrangements, and they've covered a number of styles. Uh, There are more classic jazz arrangements that hint at the stuff being played in the 50s and 60s by, you know, guys like Cannonball Adderley. And then, you know, there's more modern arrangements like what you did. You know, you just mentioned uh, Janet's Bob Dylan covers and your arrangement on It Takes a Lot to Laugh, It Takes a Train to Cry really has that 80s Pat Metheny vibe. You know, you've even hit on some of the avant-garde type thing in those instrumental passages on Janet's Oh, Emmanuel. I mean, is it challenging for you to go in these various directions? It all depends. But yeah, in some cases it is challenging. But I love that challenge in all the different genres that I write for. When I started writing more in conjunction, I started working for a, a music library as a writer, and I would get assignments from my boss on, I want this particular style or this particular genre. One uh, volume, one album or CD that we did was world music. And I really didn't have that much experience. And, and so I would go down to the library and check out all these different albums from all over the world and then just listen and imitate what I was hearing and try to capture the vibe of the music. I've always been extremely fascinated with different kinds of music and how the music is put together. Uh, I remember doing a lot of transcribing. Once again, a lot of listening to a lot of different styles. I remember transcribing everything from Michael Jackson to Nelson Riddle 
who's the big band leader, uh, Harry Connick Jr. Uh, I, I had a gig transcribing a bunch of music. I was working for a company out of Los Angeles and he would give me all different kinds of music that he wanted me to transcribe and actually program for synthesizers so that other people could use them. But that's a whole nother side of what I did. So I would just, I had a cassette player and I would just sit and listen and transcribe, write stuff down as best as I could, as best as I could hear it at that time with the vocabulary that I had, what I knew about harmonies at, at that time and just trying to figure it out. I remember having a cassette deck that I built a foot pedal for so that I could rewind and play without touching the deck. I had a couple of buttons and I would use my feet so I could loop a particular spot in the tape. This was before digital audio, so it was all old school stuff. But yeah, just a lot of listening and transcribing, writing stuff down, making notes of what I thought worked and how did this work. Uh, pop music was especially fascinating to me. I remember transcribing Earth, Wind and Fire and I mentioned Michael Jackson. Uh, it just was what made this music work the way it did and I would just take it apart and figure out what was happening. And then I would store that information away, right? And, and, and I would use that. That was my collection of tools over the years and I would use those things in my own music. Imitation, there's, there's a great saying, I think it was Toscanini, but I'm not really sure, so don't quote me on this, but he said, good composers borrow, great composers steal. Now, <laughs> I don't, you know, it's not verbatim, of course, I would never do that, and, and especially, and then say it was my own, but I would actually, I would give credit where, I would always give credit where credit was due. Yeah, I learned this from Quincy, or I learned this from, from, a particular, from John Harmon, a particular arranger. Another influence, very strong influence on me, and we intersected for a very short period of time, way too short, but his name was Chris Swanson. He was an amazing arranger. He did things that fascinated me, creating sounds that I would try to find his scores and just pour over his scores. Like, what did he do, you know, that made this sound the way it sounded? I have a uh, ferocious sense of curiosity. I'm constantly learning new things. That's my daily goal is learn something new today that I didn't know yesterday. Actually, and then that really keeps me motivated and keeps me going. Mm -hmm. Now, when you do your arranging, and again, you're doing it in various styles, do you have a specific approach to each style or is it kind of a, do you have a recipe that kind of works for everything? No, it's, it's impossible, I think, um, from my experience. I do have my go-to things that I will try and experiment with, whether I make a revision of it or not along the way. Um, but I, I, I don't really have a set of rules that I will use. I know what the conventions are. I, I know what the rules might be. But I've always believed that, and I've always been taught by others that rules are meant to be broken. But you must know the rules before you can break them. So as long as those stretching of the conventions or of the rules are intentional and on purpose or with purpose, I should say, I don't hesitate about doing that. 
Well, over time, you've developed as a composer, and as tastes and styles come and go, do you tend to compose for the current trends, or do you compose for what's on your heart and mind? Actually, both. There are some gigs I'll take where where the object is to hit a mark. There's a, a specific purpose that the client wants, or, or a specific vibe, or a specific instrumentation, and the object there is to use my expertise, I suppose, and my experience to once again, to hit that mark and satisfy the context of what I'm writing for. And, and I wanna to try to stay relevant as, as well. So that's, that's important too. But it really, you know, it, it all kind of comes from my own sensibilities and sensitivities and what I wanna do. Oh, in the last four or five months, I've written a lot, I've did a lot of big band arranging. I just love doing that. And these are, I'm starting with tunes of mine and just kind of arranging them in the context of a big band. And that is, that context is, yep, I'll do whatever I want. <laughs> you know, whatever sounds good to me, whatever emotion that it is that I'm trying to convey with this particular arrangement. But I do both. Um, like, like I said, staying relevant, hitting a mark, as well as satisfying my own uh, musicality and uh, making things sound the way I want them to sound. And hopefully they do sound the way, the way I'm hearing them and the way I want them to sound. Right. Well, you've arranged for all sorts of groups and combos from duets to big bands like you just mentioned. Some of that is purely instrumental and some of that with voice or voices. You really are well-versed in all of it. Uh, what are the similarities and differences in arranging instrumentals compared to selections that do include vocals? Writing for vocalists, uh, that I'm still learning about that, and I still on occasion will struggle with that because lyric is the priority. As I say, lyric is king, and everything has to serve the lyric, everything. And you have to provide space for that within the arrangement. I have done my share, I should say, have made my share of mistakes in arranging for vocalists. I've done a lot of listening when it comes to that as well. How does the arranger, Nelson Riddle was really Billy May. These are incredible arrangements. Nelson Riddle did a lot of, of arranging for Frank Sinatra. Uh, Sammy Nestico, another incredible arranger, but also my own experience uh, working with Janet. She really helped me to focus on the lyrics. She helped me to recognize the importance of that and where the lyric is placed. What is the range of, you know, what, what is the style? What is the range of the particular vocalist? And so... Arranging for a vocalist is a that's a whole separate discipline, and not everybody can do it. I'm like I said, I'm still learning. Uh, I still make my share of mistakes. Sometimes it works, and sometimes it doesn't. I think I'm getting a little better at it, but you know, once again, it all depends on the context as, as well. Been writing for instruments, specifically in a big band context. I'm very comfortable and very familiar with the different instruments and how they're played and what are the different sounds I can get. I also never hesitate to, add, if, I write, if I'm writing an arrangement 
and we play it, I never hesitate to ask musicians for their advice. Could this have been written better? Could this have been written differently? And that also applies when I'm working with Janet and other vocalists. I like to have a conversation at length in the very early on so that I get an idea of exactly what the vocalist is hearing, what their expectations are, what their key is, you know, what their sweet spots are. Writing for big band, I never hesitate to ask them what they think. Could this have been written better? What might be a better way to do this? I have my books that I use, uh, my arranging books. I never hesitate to crack open a manual or an instruction book or a method book or anything like that um, to perhaps find an answer to a particular situation uh, or just to get inspiration and insight. Continue to educate myself always. Yeah. And that is so important because not only in arranging, not only in composition, but pretty much in all aspects of life. Absolutely. I, oh, and, and another person I need to mention is Maury Laws. Uh, he's passed now, but he was a dear friend. I learned so much from him, studying his scores, playing his arrangements, sitting with him, asking questions. And Maury had this ability to, I would look at his scores, and when you look at them, they were seemingly so simple, but very much not simple, very much the opposite of that. But just gorgeous sounding was the music and how perhaps simplistic the scores look when that was indeed not the case. Just real quick background, Maury Laws lived in Appleton uh, his later years. He did a lot of writing for Janet, but he wrote Frosty. He wrote all, all the music for Frosty the Snowman and Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer when he was living out in California. I think it was California is where he did a lot of that. So, right. <clears throat> but he ended up settling here in Appleton and um, I spent a lot of time with him as well. So, wow, yeah. what a guy to spend some time with. Sorry, I learned a lot. Also, Fred Sturm was an was another huge influence on me as well. Going back, my goodness, Fred, I've known, I had known, he's passed now, sadly. He student taught me when I was a junior in high school in Appleton. So that's when I first met Fred. And we had a long, very, very long relationship playing in bands. I taught at Lawrence for nine or 10 years, 2002 through 2010, 2011. He chaired the, the jazz department at Lawrence University at that time, so I was teaching there. And once again, studying his scores, playing his music, asking a lot of questions, and just in the trenches, doing it with him. It's just fantastic. Yeah. Well, let's play a track now from your 2021 duet project with guitarist Scott Dirks. And the project was called When Friends Speak. And the song that we're going to play is called You Don't Know What Love Is. Now, the arrangement in the playing in this song is beautiful because of its sparseness. I just, I love it. Did you and Scott arrange this one together? Well, he actually, I, I had played that tune before but it was always in a little different more of a straight ahead jazz feel but he came to me and said i want to do this in more of a oh shuffle feel i suppose you could say i call it the this particular groove i call it the perry mason groove um for those of you that don't know what that is you'll have to youtube it 
search on YouTube and you'll be able to find the theme song for the old Perry Mason show. So Scotty came to me and, I said, and he said, let's do it like, like this. And of course it works quite wonderfully. And so it was pretty much his idea. And then of course I, I kind of put my own style on it, you know, uh, here and there, my own, my own stamp. But that was recorded over live over a summer, I believe it was 2019, where Scott and I had a bunch of gigs and I would just record each gig. And then we kind of chose the best of and uh, and released that, that, that album. I had a blast recording that stuff. He's amazing. I've known him since the mid 80s. I've shared a bandstand with him for, for almost four decades now. And uh, he's one of my best buddies, one of my best music buddies. Sounds great. Well, here's Tom Washatka and Scott Dirks with You Don't Know What Love Is. Thank you. 
playing the best alternative rock with a focus on the Fox Valley music scene. WCZR Code Zero Radio is available on our website live.codezeroradio.com or you can download our feature-packed app that includes on-demand content from recent shows on the schedule. Give us 20 minutes a day, you'll be hooked for life. WCZR Code Zero Radio. Well, moving on, you own and operate Steel Moon Recording, which you opened in 1981, and your own label, Stellar Sound Productions, which is tied to the studio, and you produce, you engineer, and you market a large number of recording projects through the studio and the label. This is all on top of playing shows and on recordings, arranging, and providing charts and composing. What drives your passion to do all these things? I never look at it that way. It's 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 just everything that I do. I'm very, very lucky, very blessed to be able to do this and, you know, make a living making music. So taking the first part of your question... So I've always been recording. In fact, I remember getting a little Panasonic cassette player for Christmas, um, late 60s, I'm probably 12 or 13. And I used to record all the time. And then I later got a little three-inch reel-to-reel of Sony machine. I've always been fascinated by the technology and being able to record and play back. Um, So... That's been something I've started years ago. That's been an interest of mine and technology, of course. Uh, But um, I've always had studios in the house, as long as I can remember. My first studio, I opened up in the house I lived here in Oshkosh in the mid-80s and continued to, to, to record. So everywhere that I lived, I always had a recording equipment, and I was always recording so what drives my passion is my curiosity music is endless the discovery doesn't stop like i said earlier i try to learn something new every day i'm fascinated by the tech and i just so look forward to you know what i'll discover tomorrow so i I kind of have a built-in motivation i don't think about it i don't need to do anything (laughs) I'm excited to get up in the morning and head to the studio and continue my work. But also the the diversity of what I do also helps to drive that because I I can work a little bit on this and work a little bit on some on something else. I, I still I play every day. I play my saxophone every day. I have a concert coming up next week. So I'm working on a program of, of big band music. Um, I got a gig with Janet this Saturday, so I'm I'm prepping that music as well. But uh, I love the diversity of what I do. I love I love everything, all the different things that that I do. The recording part of it, in front of, uh, on both sides of the microphone. Um, uh, so, but I really I don't have any problem <laughs> getting up in the morning and going to work. Sure. <laughs> or I, I I shouldn't call it work because. I love doing it, you know, so continuing on with it, I suppose. Right, right. Well, when you initially got into music as a career, did you ever dream that you'd be wearing all these different hats down the road? Not really, because I really didn't know. I didn't know what I didn't know. So I just kind of went for it. 
And it, it kind of goes back to when I was young and realized I, I was going to play music for the rest of my life and really had no idea how. And in fact, <laughs> I'm still trying to figure that out. <laughs> but I just kind of got involved with it as my interests led me. I allowed myself to try different things. Some things I naturally gravitated towards and uh, some things came a little bit slower to me, um, but I always worked at it and always enjoyed it. So rewarding. Yeah. How do you balance all of the roles you play, especially in those times that you're out touring because, you know, some of those tours take you overseas? Well, I am very regimented. I am very disciplined. I have to be. Otherwise, I would not be able to do all the juggling that I do. Um, that's the only way I can get stuff done and meet deadlines. I always use a phrase that I got from Jerry Berganzi, wonderful saxophonist out of Boston. Plan your work and work your plan. I have a schedule that I, I am religious in, in keeping. I'm very protective of the time that I spend on my music. And if I didn't do that, I wouldn't, been a, I wouldn't be able to do all the things that I do. I keep a schedule. I know what my deadlines are. I always write things down, what has to be done by when, what I'm working on. I very, very seldom uh, something will slip through the cracks. Very, very seldom. So I am very disciplined. <laughs> In, the, in my scheduling and, and the work that I do. Sure. Now, what were the factors that led to you opening Steel Moon and Stellar? Well, that was actually, so Steel Moon was, was just another studio that I had. Uh, and I was in downtown Oshkosh. My studio was above the coffee shop down on the corner. And uh, it was just named Steel Moon. It was just kind of named after uh, it was above the blue moon. And if you look out the window, there was the, there's the sundial there. It's still there, the big spike in the sky. So I, I always tried to name studios based on the location or some other thing, some other uh, obvious, whether it was the building I, I was in, for example, the studio that I had in the mid eighties, there was a big, a large blue spruce on the front right outside the front door. So, well, that was Blue Spruce Studios, you know. And that was actually, Steel Moon was actually Janet's idea. Stellar was both of our, an, an idea that was formed in 95. We were kind of frustrated with chasing the record deal. And it's kind of daunting. And we th in those days, so the internet was just kind of starting to happen. And we always had recording equipment. I was always recording so we kind of thought why don't we do this ourselves let's start our own record label and it was more of a label to facilitate our music we do have a couple art, uh, other artists on the label we don't necessarily function like a typical label does because it was mostly formed as a vehicle for our music my music her music and our music um so we, we just thought Let's let's just do it, and let's just uh, start our own our own record label. Now it's become very very commonplace. The business, and this is a whole another discussion, but the business in the last thirty years has changed even more than it changed in the previous thirty years. So the independence of the artist has grown, as well as independent musicians are still 
subject to the industry and the uh, the certain hoops that you have to jump through. So it's a double-edged sword. But anyway, Stellar was was formed just as a way to facilitate our own music. Sure. Now, as is evidenced by the music on this show, your engineering and production are impeccable. I mean, I really enjoy it. Your stuff is very easy to listen to. What do you find is the most challenging part of capturing the best quality recording? Well, other than staying on top of the tech and updating my tools and and knowing uh, how all of this stuff works. To me, the most challenging is to get the best performance out of the artist that I'm recording. I'm going to generalize here, but a great performance will survive a poor recording. It doesn't work quite so well the other way around. So if I know that I have provided an atmosphere to get the best performance out of the artist, that's the most satisfying yet the most challenging. So um, just getting the best performance, capturing that one moment, that one musical moment. And the most enjoyable is when the artist knows it was their best performance because I was able to capture that one moment. So that's kind of the yin and the yang of it. (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Well, let's play a song now called Firewater from the 2021 album Nascent that you did with Noah and Zach Harmon, who are the sons of one of yours and Janet's longtime collaborators, John Harmon. Of course, this was recorded at Steel Moon and released on the Stellar label. This has a seriously cool vibe to it. The song was written by Buster Williams, a bass player. And we just kind of took it and did our thing with it. I love what both those guys played on it, though. And then I play a wind synthesizer. So it's just a wind controller, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of like a electronic wind instrument. But it's one of my favorites of <laughs> the recording. Excellent. Well, here's Tom Washatka with Noah Harmon and Zach Harmon on Firewater. Thank you. 
Now, over the years, you've had the pleasure to work with your wife, Janet, and other top-tier talents like John Herman, who we just mentioned before the last cut, uh, vocalist Nancy King, cellist Matt Turner, who also is a heck of a pianist, guitarist Gene Bertoncini, and the list just goes on from there. Do you believe that you've picked up on bits and pieces from everyone that you've worked with to develop who you are today in the music community? Absolutely. All of them. All along the way, all along my journey, I've learned something from everyone and continue to. And those folks you mentioned are very, very important uh, as I continue on here. There have been so many over the decades, I suppose more than we can mention here, that have influenced me, have helped me uh, along the way with support or suggestions or just being a part of of the music that I bring to them and a a part of my musical life. I suppose this is going to be kind of cliche, but I don't know where I'd be had I not met these particular people at at the times that I did. Mm-hmm. I'm very grateful. I often talk about I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Wow. Yeah, you've definitely been able to do that through the various projects that you do, through the Fox Jazz Fest, through teaching at Lawrence. Yeah. You've gotten a lot of exposure to some good people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, you and Janet have to be incredibly busy people. I mean, we know all that you're doing. And going back to Janet's interview, you know, she's performing, recording, teaching at Lawrence University, and more recently giving voice instruction through her Rethink Sing program. What do the two of you enjoy doing when you have downtime? (laughs) In a word, nothing. (laughs) It's challenging to be married to someone who's in the business from the standpoint of, you know, we never stop working. We cannot listen recreationally to music. I haven't been able to do that (laughs) since I was a kid. I'm constantly dissecting it, and she's the same way. 
So we have to really kind of make a conscious effort to don't talk about the business. We, we are not going to talk about business. There is one thing that we do that we absolutely love to do. We live very close to Lake Winnebago. We live very close to the boat launch. We do have a little boat, little 15-foot putt-putt boat, but it's just fantastic. And so we will steal away for an afternoon and just do that and hang out on the water and enjoy ourselves that way. I say we will take vacations, but it's interesting because it's always in, in conjunction with a with a performance or with a gig or with a jazz camp or educational context. Uh, I can't remember the last time, if ever, we've taken a vacation and left our computers at home <laughs> <laughs> and and didn't deal with the biz. Sure. So we try to find time just to hang out and not deal with matters at hand and just kind of get away for a little bit. Right. Well, one more venture that you have is called Royalty Free Music, and that's spelled M-U-Z-I-C. And it's music that you compose, arrange, record, produce, engineer, and make available for anyone to purchase and use however they wish for almost any kind of project you can think of. To date, it's produced 135 CDs and over a thousand compositions. It's won several awards, and the music has been used in movies, documentaries, and other media worldwide. When do you sleep? <laughs> <laughs> um, I need I need my sleep. <laughs> so, uh, but a, a, a little history. So. Royalty Free Music actually started as a company called Narrator Tracks Music, and it started back in 89 uh, with a dear friend of mine from Green Bay. He was a video editor, and he had a need for background music that the music functioned in the way he needed it to function, so he hired me to write for him. I had also done some jingle work with him previous. Well, then he decided, the more I started to write for him, he noticed there was a particular void in music for underneath narration and or video. And it really didn't work the way he wanted it to function. So we started the business. And I started out as a writer and produced a lot of albums with him. I later bought the company. I acquired the company in 2005. And then uh, at that time, we were we had 63 CDs under our belt. I was doing four to six CDs a year. And now there's a, what did you say? Yes, there's 135 unsold from 64 to 135. Those are all CDs that I produced. There were other contributors along the way, other folks that wrote the music and or produced a, a, a CD. So I wasn't the only one, but I did the majority of, of the writing. So then that particular side of the business is kind of winding down. It's kind of running its its course, but I have all this music that I think is still very relevant, very usable, and I thought I need to rebrand this, and that's how I came up with royalty-free music. Royalty-free means the user does not have to log their usage. Um, back in the day, in the late 80s, if you used needle drop is what they called it, if you use that music, you had to log your usage so that the performance rights organizations could pay the writers, um, namely ASCAP and BMI. Where with the novel thing that narrator tracks was, it was one of the first royalty free music libraries out there, meaning the, the user did not, once again, did not have to 
keep track and log the usage. Well, that was very, very attractive to clients and the library did very, very well, principally as a result of the royalty-free aspect. So fast forward now, it's royalty-free music, music with a Z.com. So you can visit there and you can hear a lot of the music that is still in existence today and it's available for download and for whatever context. Most of the usage is in-house video companies, although with now streaming services, <clears throat> so that's something new, streaming music. I hear my music all over the place, uh, on YouTube, um, not too much on television, although it's interesting because I will hear particular commercials <laughs> where I'm like, okay, there's that imitation thing, but not, but on the, on the other end now, people have checked out my music. And so it's being Im imitated, which is fine. You know, I, I have no, <laughs> no problem with that whatsoever. So that's kind of how that came into existence. And I also look, I, I have a, in my studio here, I have what I call the, a wall of fame. And that is where I have put all the albums that I have either produced with Stellar on Stellar or that I, I have played on, I have arranged, uh, I am or mastered, I have been in some form. And I look at my wall and there's more than 50 albums on that wall over the last 30 years. So I have to remind myself sometimes, gosh, you know, I have been busy. <laughs> and But it's been just so rewarding and so wonderful. And frankly, I wouldn't change a thing. Uh, and I'm so grateful to be able to keep doing this. And I will do this until I can't. <laughs> so. Sure. Sounds so good. Well, I'd like to play one more song now. And this is from your current quartet called Daddio. And the song is called Family. Now, where does the name Daddio, which is in all caps, where does it come from and who makes up the group with you? The members are my good buddy, Scott Dirks, the guitarist. The drummer is Tony Wagner, who here's another fellow that I share almost 45 years history with him. So between him and Scotty, it's, uh, if I do quick math, it's about 80 years collectively. And then the bass player is a relatively newcomer, even though he's been around for quite a while. He did a lot of work in the Twin Cities back in the day. His name is Charlie Sauter. He's living in Wausau now. So he's more recent in my in my bandmate's history. Uh, Daddy also, after we got the band together, of course, we had to come up with a name. So we went back and forth for, gosh, six weeks, two months, trying to come up <laughs> with a name. We pretty much ran the gamut. And then uh, I don't know who stumbled on this. I think it was Scott. But Daddy-O is kind of a hipster term used going back to the 40s and 50s. And it was mostly spoken amongst musicians. Hey, Daddy-O. Hey, Daddy, you know, what's up? And it was, it was more of a um, term of camaraderie, mm -hmm. a bandmate kind of thing. So we thought, hey, let's just do it. Let's use that. I think this is going to work. The all caps was just something that we did just, I suppose, for the impact. Sure. It, you know? Sure. So... Yeah. Oh, and then, and family is a tune I wrote in the, like the late nineties and it basically reflects exactly what the title means. It could be my music family, my own personal family, um, whatever that word family might mean to you. Sure. 
Yeah. And I think it's very cool. Tony Wagner, what a fantastic drummer. So glad that he's playing with you in this. Yeah, I think so too. <laughs> yeah. Well, here's Daddio with Family. Thank you. 
Well, Tom, thank you for taking the time to talk today. And I got to say, if folks need some inspiration as to what one person can accomplish, they can just use you as their model. All I got to say is well done. Before we go, how can listeners find you online, get your gigging schedule, uh, stream and buy all the great music that you've had a hand in creating? Website is TomWashatka.com. And I've got a you know, gig page on there um, that you can check out. I try to keep it updated as much as possible. That's yet another thing I do. I have a recording history page, uh, my discography page. Um, check it out, but you can go there. Uh, music, these titles that you've been playing is StellarSound.net. StellarSound.net. Daddyo has a Facebook page. We do not have a website yet. So just search for Daddy Old Music on Facebook, and you can kind of check our, our schedule there. I perform with John Harmon regularly the first Friday of the month at a venue here in Oshkosh called Manila Resto, right downtown Oshkosh. I kind of re-hooked up with John. I've been doing that for about two and a half years, and it is the highlight of my month to play with him. John is 88 years old now, young, 88 years young, and he's playing as well as I've ever heard him, and it's just su such a treat. Oh, and I've been recording us um, almost every week, so look for a CD of John and I coming out, hopefully within the year. I'm just waiting for that one magical recording. Sure. <laughs> no, I'll, well, I'll, I'll, be, I'll be making a, a, a compilation of it, so. Excellent, and something for us to look forward to. Now, when you do that gig monthly, does Janet ever sit in with you guys? Oh, absolutely. There are folks that will come by with a horn. We encourage that, and yeah, she'll come down every once in a while and, and join us for a few tunes. Excellent. Sounds good. You never know, so you got to come and check it out. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, Tom, thanks again, and continued success to both you and Janet. Well, thank you so much, Rob. This has been great. Thank you for the opportunity to kind of tell my story a little bit. It's always fun to talk about my journey and if I can inspire or motivate uh, others, it, that's all, all the better. So thanks again so much, Rob. I really, really appreciate it. Oh, you bet. You bet, Tom. Thank you. Well, my guest today has been saxophonist, composer, arranger, producer, engineer, and who knows what else, Tom Washatka. If anything, I encourage you to go to StellarSound.net and check out all the great recordings he's been involved in. That would be an excellent place to start. Join me next time when bassist, guitarist, and creator Matty Day will be my guest. He just put out one of the most interesting and eclectic albums I've ever heard called Metadata, and we're going to be discussing it right here. Thanks for listening, and please share into the music with your friends and on your socials. We really appreciate it when you give the show that signal boost. So long for now, and we'll see you next time we get into the music. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Into the Music. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and Odyssey.com. Drop us a line on our socials or email us at intothemusic at newprojectx.com. 
to support Into the Music, go to buymeacoffee.com slash into the music. Your support keeps the show going and is always greatly appreciated. This show is copyright 2024 Project X Productions. Join us next time we get into the music. God bless and take care, everybody.